Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Again, we thank you for the bright sunshine out, for the cheerful feeling that it brings. And I know that many uh, in our congregation and those who can't be with us today are, are walking through a valley of discouragement, a valley of bereavement, a valley of sadness. Lord, I, I, I pray that you would be with them. I pray that you would be with them in a powerful way. I pray that they would experience a nearness of your presence. I think of those especially in our church family who have very recently lost loved ones uh, or, or who may soon be losing loved ones. Lord, this world is not our home. And death is a constant reminder of what you won for us on the cross by defeating death, by defeating the powers of hell, and offering us the opportunity to spend an eternity with you. So Lord, I pray that any burdens we bring with us here today, we will lay them at your feet, that we may just be one with you, that our focus may be entirely on you and your word, and you would, you would bring something uh, to light in our hearts. And, and, and create a change in our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There are certain social customs that we don't even think of living in the U.S. that are apparently pretty weird to people from other countries. And to be fair, vice versa. For instance, when you go to any restaurant and you order water or a soda, what is your glass or cup usually filled up mostly with? Ice, right? In fact, I remember that my father, whenever we would go to a restaurant, he would order a soda. He would always say, no ice, <laughs> when he would order that. I used to wonder why he'd do that. Dad, why are you being so weird? <laughs> Until I realized that ice was cheaper than soda, so they try to get away with giving you more ice than soda. But at restaurants in Europe, apparently, they never give you ice unless you ask for it. That's never in your glass. In the U.S., when we're at a restaurant, it's the norm that if we have leftover food, we ask for what? A doggy bag, right? Apparently in France, that's considered so rude and so frowned upon that a law actually had to be passed allowing for the use of doggy bags at restaurants in an attempt to cut down on food waste in that country. My favorite one is a custom in Greece when it comes to kids losing their baby teeth. Raina, just, our second born, just lost her first tooth this, uh, this past week. In the U.S., when a kid loses a tooth, what do they do with it? They put it under their pillow for the tooth fairy to take, right? In Greece, kids apparently take their teeth and throw them up on the roof for a magical pig to come take in the middle of the night. I'm sorry, but as a parent, I like our American custom better. I'm not getting up on my roof in the middle of the night with a flashlight to retrieve any of my kids' teeth. I don't see that conversation with the police officer sent over to investigate going very smoothly. In the parable we're taking a look at this morning, in order to understand the emotions going on and the point of it, there are a few customs from this time period and culture that we'll be taking a look at to have a better understanding of this. And you may have heard some of these before, or these may all be new to you, but these will give us a more profound understanding, a better understanding of the profound message that Jesus is getting across in the story. And like the two parables we've talked, we talked about last week, what we're going to do is we're going to get a glimpse into the heart of God. 
a glimpse into the heart of God, especially for those in the world, and even sadly, believers in Jesus write off as hopeless. Like I referenced last week, those two parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin are along the same line as the parable we're looking at today. This third parable today is the climactic one with the most detail and the most heartfelt purpose. So if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to Luke chapter 15. We're going to be in verse 11. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to Luke chapter 15 and verse 11, or you can look it up on your smartphone. Luke chapter 15, verse 11, we read, And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Like I said, this parable comes immediately after the two parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin. In direct connection with those, this third parable is directed primarily at the Pharisees, who are mad that he's having anything to do with those they've labeled as sinners. The side audience is that group of people who continually broke the Jewish law and didn't really care about it. Like I noted last week, Jesus wasn't just partying with sinners and just accepting of their sinful lifestyles and behaviors. He was the one influencing this group of people and not the other way around. At the same time, this was Jesus, in his love, sharing the word of God with those the religious leaders didn't want to have anything to do with. So with that said, let's dive into this parable. Again, verses 11 and 12. And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. Is that a question? No, that's a demand. Give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. The first verse sets up who the rest of this parable will center on. A man and his two sons. All three characters will play a major role in the following parable. In this time period and culture, a father's inheritance, in this case, would have been divided up into thirds, with the older brother receiving two of those thirds, and the younger brother receiving the remaining one-third share. The firstborn getting the two-thirds was his birthright. His, that, that's what he got as the firstborn. But what this younger brother says to his father was unheard of in those days. A father's estate was only bequeathed to his heirs when he was either no longer able to manage it himself or he was dead. So for the younger son to tell his father, demand from his father, give me my inheritance now, was essentially saying, dad, I wish you were dead. Give me what's coming to me now. Even today, that's extremely rude, right? And extremely unheard of. But back then, this father had every legal right, according to the Jewish law, to severely punish this son for his disrespect and dishonor of him as his father. In fact, for the father to just acquiesce to this extremely disrespectful son's request in any way, shape, or form would have been seen by everyone who surrounded Jesus at that point as scandalous. They, they would have seen this father as weak, foolish. He had no control over his sons for letting his son get away with this. He just said, okay, here it is. With, with seemingly, we can surmise, 
nothing said before that. He just did it. As we'll see later on, this father represents God the Father. And what was just assumed in this culture to be foolish and a sign of weakness and nonsensical on the father's part ends up affecting the rest of the story. And I think there's even a purpose for that. Not that God is foolish and does nonsensical things, but sometimes it appears that way. Perhaps the father in this story already knew the heart of his younger son. He's been there every day this son's been growing up. It's not like this act of demanding this inheritance just came out of nowhere. This son may have been rebellious for a very long time, and this was just the last straw. Perhaps the father knew that if he gave that son his inheritance, that son was just going to go blow all of it. Anyone could have seen that coming from a mile away. But perhaps the father knew that and knew that that was the only way for his son to change. The only way to get through to his son. Perhaps this father knew that the only way for his son to see his need of repentance was to let him go the long way around and fall to absolute rock bottom. And so this father allows for himself to be disrespected and allows for something that looks dumb on the surface but ends up being the one thing that changes everything in his son's life eventually. If you have a loved one that it doesn't look like God is doing anything with or anything in their life, guess what? You have no clue what God is doing in their heart. You have no clue what God is doing behind the scenes and whispering in their heart. And what seems like God doing nothing or allowing something foolish in their life may be the one thing that turns them around to finally come to him. The son's father ends up being exactly right with his prediction. Verse 13. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Pretty soon after he received his share of the inheritance, the son leaves his father and his brother. And as you can see, they're crying in the background of this photo. We can surmise his mother his home, everything he's ever known, and leaves all of it behind. Verse 13 says that he goes off to a distant land, and we can surmise from what happens next that this is a Gentile land outside of the regions of Judea and Galilee. While there, far away from anyone he knew or any other moral presence or guidance, he blew all of his money. Whether or not his older brother was right and that some of it was at least spent on sleeping with prostitutes, the money was most likely spent on worldly things that didn't have anything to do with godly living at all. That's putting it lightly. Anything this guy wanted without any thought, he bought and paid for. He got. One biblical scholar even mentions that this younger son, because he's unmarried at this point, was probably no older than 18. So can you imagine how much damage a loaded 16 or 17-year-old with no life experience can do with that much money? Even today, we cringe at what that kid would blow all that money on. We cringe at how much pointless and worldly throwing away of that money that would have happened. As anyone could have seen happening at the end of all that futile, meaningless, and worldly spending, We read this in verse 14. 
Now, when he had spent everything, coincidentally, I say that tongue-in-cheek, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. Famines were quite common in this day, age, and location. The problem was though this guy was completely broke by this point, he had nothing. What little food there was, this guy had no hope of paying for. He could look at it, but he had nothing to get it with. In a world where there were no government programs, checks, or stamps, nor any family close by, this guy had nothing and nowhere to turn. And any friends he thought he had were AWOL when they found out he didn't have any more money. Anybody have any, any friends like that? <laughs> the only option this man saw for himself to survive is what is recorded for us in verse 15. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Now what's interesting about this career move is this. Your Bible translation may have hired or joined in verse 15 for this guy's relationship to this pig farmer. But the word in the Greek has more of a permanent connection to it. In essence, what this guy had done was essentially sell himself as a slave to this farmer. Since this was a famine, Resources were sparse all around. This farmer probably did not have the resources to pay this man. So the only way this man saw to get any food at any point was to enter into an agreement with this farmer to serve him in a slave position. No one would ever want to be put in a position to willingly allow themselves to have to live in this horrific condition. But that's how bad this guy's position was. There was no way out. In fact, things were so bad that even in this new awful position, there still wasn't anything for him to eat. He stooped so low to allow himself to be put in this position, and there still wasn't anything for him to eat. He was so famished that we read in verse 16, and he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. He was so famished at this point that he was willing to eat the pig's food. First of all, for this man to be willing to live the rest of his life as the slave to a pig farmer, that in and of itself was enough to make the people listening to this story gasp. Were pigs clean and kosher according to the Jewish law? Not at all. They were forbidden animals. So for this man to even associate with them like this was scandalous. He had fallen so far from Judaism, he was willing to associate with these unclean animals for the rest of his life. What was the state of most of the people that Jesus was eating with? For all intents and purposes, they were people who had fallen very far from God's standards that were in the Jewish law. And just like all the friends of the guy in Jesus' story, most of the people sitting around Jesus while he was telling this story, no one wanted to have anything to do with him. They were seen as unclean, and no one wanted to associate with them. The Pharisees listening to Jesus' story expected and very much wished for the story to end there. 
The foolish man, for all intents and purposes, had given up his Jewishness, lived a sinful life, and got what he deserved. In fact, sadly, that's how the story ends in our minds for a lot of our friends and family members who live a sinful life, isn't it? They get what they deserve. That's it. That's the end of the story. And that might be what a lot of people have already surrendered themselves to. They think to themselves, I've given up on God. I've sinned too much. And I already know I'm just going to end up in hell. So what? I'm a sinner. I'm going to hell. And I might as well just joke about it at this point. But here's the thing. And the greatest message of hope that we can be given, especially those who think nothing's going to change. Nothing's going to change in their lives. Nothing's going to change in the life of a loved one. And that's this. Thank God that's not the end of this story. Amen? The man in this story finally comes to his senses. Verse 17. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. Now you can look this up. The word used here for the hired servants of this man's father is a completely different word than is used in verse 15 to describe the position he was in. The position described in verse 15 was the most horrific position this man could have put himself in, being stripped of all of his basic human rights. The position in verse 17 are those of servants, but ones who got paid. This was only their job. They still had their basic human rights. In fact, when you look up the word in verse 17, it's meant to be contrasted with the position of slave. And so the men that worked for his father had plenty to eat. So knowing that even the servants in his father's household had plenty to eat, this man came up with a plan, verses 18 through 19. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. That was this man's intention and what he had surrendered himself to for the rest of his life. He had squandered his position as heir, so he would live out the rest of his life as a servant. But even then, at least he'd have enough to eat. Just like with the two parables we talked about last week, the lost sheep and the lost coin, this parable too shows the crucial decision of repentance in our relationship with God. Nowhere does it say in God's word that God's love overlooks our sinful lifestyles and behaviors and is perfectly fine with the life continued to be lived in, in, in that sin. Nowhere in scripture does it say that. We'll see that God's love finds us where we are, but he is never content to just leave us where he finds us. When he finds us, he goes to work on our lives through his Holy Spirit, bringing every area of our lives in line with his standards and what pleases him. We're always in a process of change. We're always in a process of God raising us to higher and higher levels of pleasing him with our lives. But repentance is a crucial and integral part of that. It's not optional. You cannot have a restored relationship with God unless there's first repentance of the life you're living. See, that man had to make a decision. 
He had to leave the life he was living behind and turn towards the direction of his father's home. He couldn't just keep living the morally impoverished life he was living and expect his father to find him and be perfectly fine with where he was and what he was doing. He had to make the decision to leave all of that behind and start seeking after God. Those sitting around Jesus who were not living for God needed to hear that. God wanted to have a restored relationship with them. But they also needed to repent of the way they were living. One didn't work without the other. They needed to turn away from the sin in their lives and turn towards God and what he wanted for their lives. So this man left that faraway land, turned his back on it, and started heading the direction he needed to. Eventually, this man reached the border of his father's farm. Where was his dad? All this time, where was his dad? Verse 20. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, he's just at the border of his father's farm. His father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. This is one of the most powerful verses in all of Scripture. All this time, while this guy is off doing his own thing, his father is standing at the top of the hill watching for him, waiting for him. His dad was not aloof. His dad was not sitting in the house, not caring about the son he had lost. His dad was out standing on the hill that the house sat on, every day looking out towards the road that if his son would return at all, would come back on. His dad had never given up hope. His dad always waited for him to repent and come back home. And what does verse 20 tell us? Was his dad mad at him? Did his dad let out an exasperated sigh and say, What now? I'm sure all he wants is more money because I'm sure he spent everything he had. Did he go up to him and smack him upside the head and say, What's wrong with you? What do we read in verse 20? His dad was watching him, and as soon as he caught a glimpse of him, while he was still a long ways away, he felt what for his son? Compassion. Love. That's all he felt. Pure compassion and love. Why? His son had returned. And what else did the father do? Did he say, I see him. I have compassion over him. He's wasted all my money. I'm, the least I can, I can do is just sit here and wait for him. And just kind of look at him. The whole way he's walking up that road. What does he do? He runs. As soon as he catches a glimpse of him, is filled with compassion, he runs towards him. He was not going to let one more second pass where he wasn't as close as he could be to his long-lost son. In this time and culture, no one who was over a certain age would run anywhere, period. It was dishonorable to yourself for everyone else who was supposed, because everybody else was supposed to run to you, not the other way around. You reached a certain age, everybody else was supposed to run to you. You were never supposed to run to anybody else. In fact, if you did that, everybody looked at you as dishonoring yourself. Furthermore, everyone wore a one-piece tunic 
which was like an oversized t-shirt, which you would tie a belt around. The more wealthy or honorable you were, the longer your tunic was. That was a sign of wealth. That's why when Jacob made that special coat for, for Joseph, his brothers were so angry and jealous because it wasn't just a colorful coat. It was a very long tunic-type coat, one that somebody sat around and looked pretty in, didn't go out and do any work. So the more wealthy you were, the longer your tunic was. As this was the father of the household, he would have had a tunic that pretty much reached the ground on him. For him to run towards his son, this guy would have had to hike that long tunic up to, to, uh, that pretty much reached the ground and above his knees to be able to run anywhere. And showing that much leg for this man's age in this culture was very dishonorable. Nowadays, it's pretty common to see an older guy in a Speedo at the beach or the pool. But back then, it was completely unheard of. So what this father did was dishonorable in two ways. A, he dishonored himself by running in the first place. And B, he dishonored himself by revealing that much of his legs. But this is what was important. Brothers and sisters, did he care? No, not at all. Did he let social custom dictate how he showed his love to his son? Not at all. His love for his son surpassed any cultural norm or custom, and he risked looking foolish in front of his servants and the rest of his household because he wanted his son to see how much he loved him. See, everyone in his household knew how much, he loved his, how much his son had dishonored and shamed him. Everybody was there. Everybody was standing around watching his son disrespect and dishonor this man, take his money, and leave. Everybody watched that happen. Everybody knew how much this guy had shamed his father by demanding his inheritance when he did, and then leaving him in the lurch. Not only did he take his father's money, but he left as, as who was an employer in his father's farm. His dad had one less guy to work the farm. He left him completely in a lurch. But the father didn't care how his love for his son looked to anyone else, not to his servants, not to the rest of his household, no matter how much his son had sinned against him. And God does not care how his love for you looks to anyone else, no matter how much you've sinned against him. This act on the father's part went hand in hand with the act on his son's part. His son made known his repentance to his father at the same exact time, verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Your heavenly Father is running after you because of what Jesus did on the cross for you. Not caring how it looks to anyone else and not caring how much you've sinned against him. But you have to turn to him. You have to turn to him and repent of your sin and ask him for his mercy as this son did to his father. See, the son could have said, oh, look, Look how much my dad loves me. And made the decision to keep his mouth shut. But he didn't. 
He followed through with that repentance. The father continues to buck what his son deserved and only wants to show him the love his son did not deserve. His son deserved to be disowned. His son deserved to be banished from the household. His son did not deserve the following treatment, but this is what his father did in response to his son's repentance. Verses 22 through 24. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found and they began to celebrate. That is not what that son deserved at all. If his father wanted to show love to him in our human understanding, fine. If he wants to forgive him, fine, in our human understanding. Welcome him back. He still has to suffer the consequences, right? What does the father do? When his son repents to him, he turns around and throws a party for him. We read last week in the two parables that all of heaven erupts into a giant party every time a soul has been found. One more soul has been found by Jesus. And the exact same illustration is given here, too. And there's quite a bit of symbolism connected to each of these gifts that the father then gives to this prodigal son. The first thing this father wants to give to his son is the best robe. That's what we read there. According to one biblical scholar, this probably would have been his own robe, the father's robe. Extending this a little, when we come to God in repentance because we recognize Jesus took our place in death for our sin, he clothes us with his righteousness. He no longer sees us as sinners, but he only sees us as clean before him. Our daily responsibility is keeping that robe on, not taking it off. Not saying, well, that was nice. I came to God in repentance because of what Jesus did for me through his death and resurrection. He put the best robe on me, the, the robe of righteousness. He saw me as clean. Now, the next day, I don't feel like wearing this anymore. I'm just going to take this off and toss it over here and go do what I want to do. Every day, we have to clothe ourselves again. Keeping that robe on, not taking that off. Keeping that robe on each day. Each day we clothe ourselves with living our lives to please God. Out of our love for him for making us his children. That son was overwhelmed because of what is the love that his father showed for him, right? You think the son was that ready to take that robe off that quickly? No, not at all. Paul writes, because we belong to the day bright sun, light. We must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness or in sexual promiscuity and immoral living or in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your sinful desires. Keep that robe on every day. Do you think, considering how merciful this father was towards him, that that son was quick to do anything close to what he had done again? Not at all. He sought to honor his father as much as he could from that point forward. God has shown his mercy towards us and has given us the robes of royalty, 
of being his children. So we too must live to honor the one who gave those robes to us in the first place. Secondly, the ring the father gives this son, as has been pointed out, was most likely the family signet ring. In wealthy households, which this one obviously is, since they even have a fattened calf to begin with, when the father of the household would send an important letter to someone else, he'd roll that piece of paper up, drip wax on it, and press the image on his ring into the wax to seal that document. So anyone having that signet ring would also have what? The authority uh, as the representative ambassador of the one whose ring it was. The father trusted his son with that authority right off the bat by giving him the signet ring. And our father trusts us with the authority of being a representative of Jesus to this dark world immediately after we come to him in repentance. From the moment of repentance onward, we are trusted by God as Jesus' representatives to this world. God's God's word commands us, and whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Next, the father made sure someone brought his son a pair of sandals. In this time period and culture, the servants did not wear sandals. Those were only reserved for members of the family who employed them. So this was the father's way of saying, no, I'm not going to see you as one of my servants. I see you still as my son. And when we come to God in repentance and acceptance of Jesus' death and resurrection for us, he immediately adopts us as his children. And he immediately adopts us as the heirs of his inheritance of eternal life and his blessing. How lightly do we take that? How lightly do we take that inheritance of eternal life and and his blessing? God's word tells us, so you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. The closest form of endearment a child could say to his dad, Abba. For his, father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. Isn't that incredible? You could walk through the rest of this life wondering, am I really God's child even though I accepted Jesus' death and resurrection on my behalf? But his Holy Spirit constantly, every day, affirms to us, You are God's child. You are a child of the Most High God. He loves you. He's protecting you. He's providing for you. He's guiding you. He's convicting you. And at the end of all of it, you are going to join him in paradise. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. goes hand in hand with that. In fact, as if being his child wasn't enough, we are also heirs of his inheritance. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. Here's what we have to remember. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. The glory does not come without the suffering. Being God's adopted child does not mean we will now have a suffer-free life. And that's the trap many people fall into. They accept Jesus as their Savior and their King, and they wonder why their life is all of a sudden 
filled with suffering and is all of a sudden a very hard life. Guess what? That is the only thing Jesus did promise when it came to the life lived after accepting him as Savior and King, that your life is going to be filled with suffering. Because through trials is how God grows us. We don't grow when everything is just going along great and smoothly. In fact, it's during those times that we often forget about God. But it's during the times of trial when we're in that crucible and, and, and we're wondering what in the world is life all about. That is when God grows us. That is when God stretches us. That is when God grows us by leaps and bounds and makes us more and more into the likeness of his son. So we must share Christ's suffering. Jesus suffered in this world, and as his followers, we must also suffer. But along with that suffering, we know that only because of God's mercy upon us and his adoption of us as his children, we have an eternal inheritance awaiting us someday. Lastly, the father told his servants to go kill the fattened calf and throw a huge party. In every other parable Jesus has taught, which we've gone through, what does a banquet represent? The coming kingdom of Jesus, right? That's what a banquet represents. We'll get more into that next week when we cover the older brother's response to all of this. But for now, all we need to see is that our repentance, because of God's mercy, gains us entrance into his kingdom. In fact, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he said the only way somebody can gain entrance into the kingdom of God is to be born again. That's the only way. It's not through, and this is what we talked about on Easter Sunday, it's not through any amount of good things we can do or, or amount of prayers we can pray or, or doing all these other things. It's only through being born again. It's only through accepting Jesus as your Savior and your King, repenting of that life and turning to his love. When we repent, because of God's mercy, we gain entrance into his kingdom. It's like a pass that gets you into more than one attraction. I don't know if they still do that, but they used to do that in places like Philly and New York City. You could buy a pass, and it would get you into multiple attractions for, for one fee. We gain access to his spiritual kingdom in the here and now. We gain access to his coming millennial kingdom on earth when he fully returns. And we gain access to his heavenly kingdom for all of eternity. It's one pass that gains us entrance into his kingdom, all, fa all the phases of it. And all of this is hinged not upon anything we can do. All of this is hinged upon the mercy of God. We've all sinned. We're all in need of repentance and we're all in need of God's mercy to save us from that sin and the hell that we deserve. If you've never come to God in repentance because Jesus died for your sin and lives again to give you spiritual transformation, do so right now. If you once were in full connection to God's family, but you've wandered away, come back today in repentance. God has been waiting for you. And he's ready to open, uh, welcome you with, back with open arms, the open arms of his never-ending love. If you have repented and you have been a part of God's family for years, be reminded of how much he loves you and that it's only because of his mercy that you have any of this. 
God's forgiveness and adoption into his family is not owed to any one of us for any kind of perceived inherent goodness. It's only because he chose to have mercy on us. And so we are eternally, eternally grateful for that mercy on our lives. And therefore, we live our lives to honor him because of that mercy towards us. This is our only hope. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. Maybe, just maybe. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. We were still out in the pig pasture. Having sinned against him in every way, shape, and form. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ and only by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So, this is why we're gathered here today. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for seeing us in this way. We thank you that when we turn to you in repentance, you were waiting with welcome arms, full of compassion and full of love, ready to bestow all the blessings and rights of, us, of children and heirs onto us. Lord, that's more than we can bear. That overwhelms us. You could have just forgiven us, and, and said, we're good now. But Lord, you overwhelm us with all of the blessing that you pour out upon us after that moment. Lord, I pray that we would live our lives as good representatives of you, honoring you by keeping on those robes of righteousness, living each day according to your standards and to please you. You are our Father. That's what we want to do with the rest of our lives, to please you. So Lord, if there's anybody here today or watching online later that has never made the decision to come to you in repentance only because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, opening that opportunity to us, I pray that they would do that today. And if there's anybody here or watching online later that made that decision, was part of the family of God, and has kind of wandered away a little bit, I pray that they would turn back. Come back to the family. Come back to your fold. Come back to your protection. You're still waiting. You're still well, ready to welcome them back with open arms. And Lord, I pray that if, if, we were, if we came to you in repentance and we've lived our lives walking with you every step of the way and we've done that for years, I pray that we would be reminded just how much you love us and how much your mercy plays a part. It's only because of your mercy in our lives. We're not owed anything. It's only because of your mercy. And so, Lord, I pray that we would take that mercy to one more person, especially those the world has written off as hopeless, the world doesn't want to have anything to do with. 
that we would be your representatives to this dark and hurting world. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.